The world is in a climate crisis, and young people are the ones who will bear the brunt of its outcomes. So what can physics offer to solve some of the problems? Hello, I'm Gemma Milne. I'm a science writer and researcher, and I'm delighted to be bringing you this third series of Looking Glass, the podcast from the Institute of Physics. In this series, I'm asking what physics can do in the here and the now to stop climate change progressing at its current rate. I'll be joined by leading physicists and engineers who explain the issues that the elements of our planet are facing. We'll be talking about how physics can be applied to identify problems, as well as how the latest research and innovations are helping to find solutions. In this episode, we'll be focusing on fire. It's not rare to see front pages of newspapers declaring that the earth is burning, but how much of that is true? Is it a symptom or a cause of climate change? How much can a fire be a force for good? And what can physics offer to ensure fires are used in the most responsible way? My guests today are both developing wildfire management strategy, on the ground and in the sky. Professor Martin Wooster is an expert on satellite earth observation and the quantification of landscape fire. He's a professor of earth observation science at King's College London. He's also a director at the Leverhulme Centre for Wildfires, Environment and Society and at the UK's National Centre for Earth Observation. So his understanding of fire is increasing on a regional and global level. Tertia Streedham is a scientist of abiotic processes with South Africa National Parks, which means she looks at the way non-living elements of our Earth work. Currently based at Kruger National Park, she helps to develop and research responses to wildfire and fire management strategies to ensure optimum conservation. We started with the basics. When it comes to defining wildfire, what do we actually mean? The term wildfires is is kind of used very commonly to describe, I guess, any kind of fire on an open landscape. But in fact, many of those fires are controlled or or lit on on purpose for a land management objective. So I guess if you wanted to narrow it down, a wildfire would be a kind of a larger uncontrolled fire that is, you know, burning without human intervention. Um, And in fact, humans might intervene to try to put it out. So, Martin, you touched on it there, this idea that it can be necessary to start fires in order to actually keep control of them. What are the positives of doing that, Tertia? I think you call them the savannah processes. Uh, Would love if you could tell us a little bit about that. In the savannah biome and many of the biomes in South Africa, or Africa for that matter, um, fires have been proven to be part of the ecosystem. You know, it's one of those key drivers exactly like climate and water and herbivories and um, they are important for maintaining the ecosystem health you know controlling that balance between trees and grasses that we have in this landscape and many of the animals rely on 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 recently burnt areas as well they tend to congregate in recently burnt areas because just as it recovers post fire that fresh green flush and grass is what actually draws them to an area So yeah, fires are very key in this landscape. Tersha, we're looking at all the elements of the earth in this series. And, you know, we've already covered water and soil. The next episode, we're going to be looking at air. And, you know, of course, you're you're looking at all these things. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how they all interact or, um, I guess, what's at stake for these different factors, particularly when we experience an unmanaged wildfire. With regards to within Kruger itself, so quite a bit of the work that I'm involved in is not 
purely just fire in isolation, but more how it interacts with other drivers in the landscape. So there's quite a bit of research that we do as to how fires affect soils and how fires affect um, hydrology, whether it's soil hydrology or even watershed hydrology. If fires are on a very large scale, they can affect the hydrology in the landscape as well. So the research we, we've been finding in the park is that, you know, we often talk about savannas as being fire adapted, both the trees, both the grasses, both the animals as well are all fire adapted. Same goes for our soils. Our soils are not as negatively affected as we thought they would have been with these fires. But that's with natural fires in a sense that they're burning at a, what we call a fire return interval, which is the, the time between the last fire, right? So they're burning on a regular um, schedule like they should. But in cases where you might have fire suppression, for example, where when you do get a fire, it's a wildfire that burns very hot um, and very intense because of these years of biomass and fuel accumulation, in those cases, you can definitely affect your soils negatively um, because the heat and that intensity of that fire is way more extreme than that fire would have been had it not been suppressed for many decades. So there definitely is an interaction between fires and other abiotic ecosystem templates and um, other factors in the landscape as well. Martin, I want to bring you in here. It maybe sounds like a bit of an obvious question, but on a human level, I mean, what what risks come with non-managed wildfire? You know, to, why should we be thinking about this, researching it? Obviously, you do a lot of work in, in being able to, to map and understand wildfires, but what's it all for at the end of the day when we're thinking about this from the human perspective? Clearly, um, fires pose a direct threat to property and livelihoods and even human beings um, in the most extreme cases, if we're talking about effects on humans. But actually, the, the largest effect on human health is actually through the smoke they release. So if you've ever stood next to a bonfire, you'll know that it's pretty unpleasant downwind or can be. And um, if you imagine that, you know, magnified huge numbers of times, the effect on the air quality downwind of a, of, of a large fire or indeed lots and lots of small fires like might be used for agricultural waste management, for example, is pretty extreme. There's research that shows that the smoke from fires contains, well, it's well known to contain very small particles in high concentration, but those particles, to some extent, are similar that might come out of other forms of combustion, you know, exhaust pipes, for example, of vehicles. It looks like those from wildfires may be coated with other chemicals that may make them more damaging to health. And in fact, some research that we were involved with a little bit done by epidemiologists recently suggests that as many as maybe 9% of children under five in the world who die when they're under five are killed by exposure to wildfire smoke or smoke from at some form of landscape burning, which is absolutely enormous. If you, if you think about, you know, malaria, malnutrition, poor sanitation, all those other things, that are a danger to young children. Approaching 10% is a very large number. That is huge. I didn't, I'd never even heard of that. I was very surprised as well, to be honest, when we thought that. I mean, we did some research with a colleague from the University of Southampton, Gareth Roberts, who, who Tercia knows very well as well. And we'd done a similar study a year or two before, but we didn't use epidemiological data. So we just used a so-called dose response function, which essentially... Um, was probably derived from things like exposure to tobacco smoke or other forms of, of uh, air pollution, um, particularly air pollution. 
And that showed that, you know, many hundreds of thousands of people are dying early, basically, as a result of exposure to wildfire smoke. But this more recent study was uh, one of the only ones I've seen that used actual epidemiological data to kind of back that up. This this actually brings me quite nicely then onto the discussion around the role of physics, right? So it sounds like there's clearly a lot of scope for trying to understand, um, you know, where fires are and the impacts that they're having. I can imagine also prediction and hopefully prevention of some of these negative impacts as well. So Martin, maybe you could give us a little bit of a of an overview or an insight into where physics sort of sits in here um, and, and, and what it is that's being done um, right now to manage these, these negative impacts. One of the things that, that my research group do a lot of is essentially using Earth observation satellites to identify where fires are burning on the planet and measure uh, their size, essentially, how much. We actually measure it in terms of uh, the power output, so how much heat they're radiating. And we use for that um, satellites that are mostly not designed for that purpose. They're designed for you know weather forecasting or um, imaging the land for some other reason, um, or the ocean indeed. And they have kind of uh, thermal imaging capabilities, and we kind of exploit that to identify where things are hotter than they would normally be and there's various algorithms and, and tests that you have to use to identify um, what might be a fire and dis- discriminate it from other phenomena. And all that kind of stuff is underlying it is, is, is basically physics and physical principles. We code up mathematical sets of equations to convert this raw satellite data into information on, on fire. And that's often done in real time. Um, so the satellites are coming over and literally, you know, within an hour or so, you can get the information in the hands of people like Tercia who might want to use it for fire management. There's lots of other reasons you might want to do it. People uh, run air quality models uh, with this information. So how, how is this fire going to affect the air quality downwind? You know, um, and where's the smoke going to go? Those models are basically built on physics, you know, fluid dynamics and such like. Also, uh, people doing fire management or planning prescribed burns and things they may use a fire spread model. So, you know, if I light my fire here under a certain set of conditions, where is it likely to spread to? And if you're, let's say, you know, um, I've got colleagues who work in the forest service in Canada, for example, they use these sort of models to understand if they're tackling a fire, you know, which can go on for weeks, um, where is that fire likely to be affecting in, you know, the next few days? Um, so they, it can help them dis- make decisions about where to deploy resources. So all those things are underlain by by physics, basically. Well, let's let's bring you in here, Tersha, because uh, as Martin said, you you'll be able to take that information and and do do real stuff on the ground with it, right? So, I mean, how easy is it to predict wildfires or predict the impact of wildfires on the ground, and and how does this information um, that's coming from various different kinds of physicists and and scientists more generally um, impact your decision making on a day to day basis? So it's really quite, quite important for us to use it for park management. So when we go into our fire season, which generally starts around now, July, August, September, until the rains start again, maybe around November, this is the time of the year where fires are, where most of the park burns, right? So we rely on those satellite imagery and those models for mapping each and every fire that burns in Kruger National Park. So the park is about 2 million hectares, it's about the size of Slovenia. 
So, you know, it's the size of a country. So to map it from just being on the ground is very, very difficult. So it helps having these eyes in the sky. Um, and whenever we, we have a fire, each fire is reported on the ground with ranges. Um, and then we use the satellite imagery on a monthly basis to keep track how much of the park is burning every year. You know, and that's just with fires that's been, that's already burnt and how we monitor and map the fires. What is quite useful and, um, you know, something that we always, as an end user, um, would like also from these models and satellite imagery is to actually help us, as you rightfully say, you know, predict where we might have fires. So with regards to how much fuel, what's the fuel load and biomass available throughout the park so that we can see where are these high risk areas where there's, where there's this buildup of fuel that has happened over time. It's just really hard to have that on the scale of the park that we're talking about. Um, and also to have it in a dashboard that's very user-friendly for us as the end user, because we're not all as smart as Martin. <laughs> <laughs> I usually rely on other people to do the actual oh. coding. <laughs> oh, okay. So we need those guys. <laughs> yes, quite. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's actually an interesting point around uh, taking information, complicated, complex information, and making it not only understandable, but usable in the real world. And um, I think something that both of you have perhaps touched on is the, you know, the understanding of wildfires is not necessarily so great, particularly when it comes also to the public too, right? Understanding of what causes wildfires, which ones are good, which ones are bad, and so on and so forth. And I think particularly, I mean, Obviously, when we're, we're talking about climate change specifically, fire is a really great metaphor, right? Um, and reality to some degree when it comes to talking about climate change, the sort of world is burning meme um, is, is often utilised a lot, um, you know, for good and for bad when we're talking about climate change. And I wondered if you could, um, I'd love to hear from both of you, what's the sort of correlation between the impacts of climate change and, and what's happening in the world with changes in the ways that wildfires are playing out and and what i guess the, the key question is is what isn't being understood or, or what are we getting wrong um when it comes to this Tersh, i'm going to start with you as a person on the ground who we actively manage fires we often get these kinds of um, questions and concerns from the general public so from the tourists for example and i do think that a large part of people's perceptions of fires and wildfires is the media, for sure. You know, and often, like you rightfully said, when people think of climate change, there's always the image of a raging wildfire, right? So when people think of fires, even if we're using it proactively to ensure its ecological role in the system, people's perception is often that it's a negative thing. And there was a recent study that myself and some colleagues did within South African National Parks, where we looked at the last three years of media coverage of fires in our national parks. And um, we basically found that whether the actor was purely a journalist or a victim of fire or something, but not a scientist or a fire manager, there was definitely more of a negative uh, association put with fires, right? So when a fire manager or scientist is involved, we tend to give that more balanced, nuanced coverage of fire to say that there is wildfires and they can be devastating and they can have that negative effect of people and their lives and infrastructure. But fires are a natural phenomenon and it is inevitable in fire-prone landscapes and that we need to use fires proactively. So I definitely think that... Um, 
media coverage has a big part to play. And then another aspect of fires and climate change um, is also not necessarily just that, because the way it's portrayed, like even if I see it on TV, I'm always like, oh no, like fires are what's causing climate change, right? But it's more also that the change in the climate is changing the way in which our fires are behaving. We tend to see fires in parts of of, of of the globe that historically would not be burning as often, not be burning as hot as it's currently burning. And even in the park, we're actually quite concerned with the increase in hotter days and drier days. How are our fires going to be behaving in the future? You know, like, um, and what effect that will then have on the landscape? Martin, we'd love to, to bring you in here and hear a little bit about your thoughts on on this as well. And, and, and really, you know, We'd love to just know what is the sort of reality then of the wildfire situation globally at the moment? You know, how bad is it? Um, where are we seeing them? And and where are the impacts of climate change making things worse for us all with regards to wildfire? In terms of climate, I think it is definitely a mixed picture. So we, we don't have hugely long records of fire in most countries worldwide, you know, so we don't actually know so well what fires were doing um you know a hundred years ago uh you can do paleo records and things like that but but the satellite record which is definitely the most kind of uh consistent measured you know uniformly all over the planet and stuff that that started to get pretty good after um the year 2000 and before that um, you know, there were satellite Earth observation measurements being made, but they were less good. And actually, a colleague of mine has just done for part of his PhD, uh, extended that record using these old observations back to the mid-1980s. So we got a bit of a longer record of what actually is going on with fire worldwide. And, you know, we can compare it to the post-2000 data that is of higher quality, but but less length. And what we see is basically in some areas of the planet at the moment, fire is going down. So in parts of um, Northern Hemisphere, Africa, for example, burned area and other metrics like the number of activifiers and things seem to be going down over time. Now, why is that? It might be because of um, more land is being put over to agriculture, which probably breaks up the landscape and there's less large fires, you know, they can't spread so easily or various reasons like that. In um, parts of the Amazon, for example, there was huge increases in fire some time ago, then then there was a very strong push to lessen deforestation and a very great effort put into, um, you know, stopping fires and all sorts of fire prevention strategies. And then in recent years, that effort has, has lessened a bit. So what we see from that is that actually people are having a very big effect on fires. You know, people's activity, policies that may influence what people do, those are probably having a much more immediate impact on the amount of fire in places than climate. You know, climate change is definitely, you know, having an impact, but it is a slow process and it's gradually changing. It's not, it's not you know, if you suddenly have a policy that is essentially not very enforced in terms of fire, pre- you know, preventing fires, then you, you could have a massive effect in, in only a couple of years on the number of fires that are occurring in a region. But this same analysis uh, that I was talking about of this long-term satellite record shows that um, in some areas of the planet, it, it does appear that 
for example, post-2000 fires might be behaving a bit differently than pre-2000, for example. Um, uh, not, not, not on that actual time, you know, uh, very year change, but, you know, in the decades before 2000 compared to the decades after. And um, parts of Australia, parts of North America, that, that seems to be the case. And, and that, those changes to some extent seem to be correlated with changes in uh, meteorology that might be to do with climate change. So, so the climate change signal is certainly potentially there in some areas, but, but there's massive amounts of fire around the planet and, and most of it is being much more heavily influenced by what people are doing. I think Martin really touched on a very important topic there regarding policies and what a big impact policies such as fire suppression has on the way in which fires are burning around the world. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, even within Kruger itself, although Kruger is a, a wild area and a conservation area, we've also gone through decades where fire suppression was thought to be the ideal fire strategy to have back then. Um, and that was during the time in which we had some of the biggest fires burning in the park. Policy is obviously such a huge area when it comes to climate change um, for the reason that you said, Martin, that it's about people, right? I mean, we, we can't just blame the climate. We've had massive impacts on it as uh, decisions made over over eras and eras of, of, of um, human development. So I, I think the point here is that, okay, it's not just about saying climate change is having an impact on fire, but rather going people are and what is it that we have to do next. So I would love to hear from both of you, maybe an example or, or something that you would love to see implemented um, when it comes to policy, you know, what, what's the, what's the problem? What's not happening and what needs done from your perspective? Martin, we'll start with you. I'm sure this is a huge area, but uh, give us, give us some insight. One of the ideas at the moment is that, uh, as Tercy was saying, there's kind of been in many countries, there's been policies of um, fire exclusion, basically that uh, not only in national parks, but generally, that fire is, is, is managed out, basically, of, of an environment. But actually, what that does is just create the um, conditions for much larger and potentially more, effect, more intense fires to actually happen when they finally do happen. Uh, because often there's no shortage of ignitions, you know. Most ignitions are coming from human activity, either on purpose or accidentally. Uh, of course, there's lightning and things as well. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, there's going to be ignition sources. And if you've managed fire out of an environment, you basically grow fuel and don't get rid of it. And and that will become um, more and more the conditions for, for which a, a larger and more intense fire can, can burn. And um, also, if you haven't broken the landscape up, as I was saying, into smaller bits, then, you know, a fire can spread very easily, you know, uh, a, a very long way. So one of the policies that is being um, kind of trialed in various places is basically what's called early burning in some cases, where basically fire is actually applied to landscapes on purpose, um, but it's done during the part of the season that typically fires would be burning less intensely, the rate of spread would be lower, and so they're much easier to manage, or they might just go out themselves after a little while. And you apply this kind of in a patchwork to a landscape, and then essentially it means that in later in the season where there might be the tendency for bigger or more intense fires to occur, they can't really spread too far because, you know, they'll come across um, an area that's already been burned early in the season. So it basically prevents, um, you know, large catastrophic wildfire spread, or that's one, one idea of it. 
just to follow on on what Martin was talking about with this drive towards early season burning, um, on the one hand, so within Kruger, what we do is we do also have areas where we put in these early dry season fires, where the fires are a lot cooler, uh, slow moving, and do not spread as far for the exact same reason of breaking up that continuous layer of fuel that when it's late in the dry season and the fuel is drier and the weather is drier, um, that's that's the time of the year where wildfires can burn um, really hot and through large parts of the park. So we put in these early season burns to break up the fuel to limit that risk of wildfires later. Um, the only concern that um, myself and some other scientists have about that with regards to fires specifically within Southern Africa, where we're based, is that, you know, if the drive is only to support early season fires and not have late season fires, you know, what is the ecological um, influence that that might have if we were to remove the late season fires out of the landscape? Because uh, surely they do have an ecological role to play where um, you have these these fires later in the dry season. So to only steer towards early season fires, um, there's just we just don't know enough yet about what ecological effect that might have on the landscape. And that's just talking from a Southern African perspective. Let's build a little bit on that point around unknown. Um, what do we still need to learn about fires? I mean, what is it that you would both love to know or what are you working on in terms of improving and, and getting that knowledge so that things can be better um i suppose it's, it, it sounds like maybe perhaps a uh both a pessimistic and optimistic question but i would hope for scientists you would see as an optimistic or an opportunity type question in terms of um gaining more understanding um martin let's start with you one area of the the work we do is mainly around satellites although although we do other things as well we we collaborate with tercy and others on on field work and other things to kind of prove what the satellites are telling us there's a few uncertainties still in the sort of things we do one of which is that um satellites are very good at, at you know observing the planet very regularly but they don't do it uh in that much spatial detail if you want to observe very frequently. So you, you can get satellite images. If you look at Google Earth or something, you know, you can see individual houses and all sorts of stuff. But typically, if you want to look at the planet every day, you know, you have to use much more coarse uh, data, typically, you know, 500 meters or one kilometer every pixel. So that basically means we miss some of the smaller fires. And uh, the thing is that um, those smaller fires are typically way more common than, than the larger ones. and uh, you know, we don't really know yet what we're not seeing, if that makes sense. The unknown unknowns. Um, so so in some of the parts of the planet, um, you know, very high resolution data has been used to look at fires. And, and we kind of got an understanding of, of that the, there are significant amounts uh, of fire not being seen by satellites currently or, or the sort of satellites that we use generally for science. Um, but that hasn't really been done in other places. So, for example, this agricultural burning in parts of India that is so uh, much affecting the air quality of places like Delhi. The, the fires are hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away in Western India, um, and they're delivering smoke to, to Delhi. And we were involved with some uh, collaborators in India and the University of Leicester and other places. And uh, that work was showing that, you know, at really bad times, perhaps more than 60% of the air pollution in uh, Delhi was was caused by burning in, in Western India. But actually, if we're not seeing all those fires, 
then it may well be more than that, you know, because we're missing some of them because they're, they're, though there might be thousands burning at once, they're all very small. So we definitely miss some of them. And the other thing I would say is um, how to convert the satellite measurements actually into the estimate of the fire emissions that go into these models, you know, whether it be models of how the um, greenhouse gas concentration is, of, the, of the atmosphere is changing or models that they're trying to forecast, you know, where smoke is going to uh, arrive at in terms of air quality forecasting. Satellites can measure burned area. They can measure the presence of active fires. Uh, they can also measure even the atmospheric presence of, of, of smoke. We can see 100 square kilometers been burned yesterday. How much smoke did that fire actually emit? Well, we obviously have methods to do that but they are all fraught with uncertainty. You know, how much material has actually burned per square meter on that 100 square kilometers, for example, or how much material is burned per megawatt of thermal radiant power, you know, coming out of a fire um, for a particular time period. So, so yeah, th those things are, are kind of estimated at the moment, and it would be better to know those more accurately so that we could get these fire emissions estimates uh, more precise. Tersh, I'm going to go go to you. What would you What would you love to know? What are the gaps that we have in our in our knowledge right now that that people like yourself are working on? From our perspective, as an end user, although we use the satellites for the active detections and the burnt areas, like Martin mentioned, you know, it would be interesting to also have you know available at our fingertips would be some estimate of fire intensity. So not only that an area burnt but an estimate for actually how hot that fire was. And I know that's quite that's quite a, um, an important field that I know Martin and his colleagues are really working hard on, but that would be something that's really useful for us because, you know, managing a park the size of Slovenia, with there's certain parts of the park where we have an ecological objective where we need hot, high-intensity fires and some areas where we want cooler, low-intensity fires. So really how would it be helpful if, a satellite could tell us that, okay, this area burnt, it was this big and it burnt at this time of the year. And this was a rough estimate of what that intensity was. Because then it definitely makes it easier to manage um, fires if, if we were to know that, for example. Then the other part that I think is um, lacking, and this is purely from a conservation area perspective, you know, we always talk about Kruger being renowned as a big five, national park, etc. And a lot of our conservation efforts are focused on the, you know, the, the animals that people can see and that people like and the charismatic animals as well. But from a soil perspective, we know very little about the microbial activity and the microbes within the soils and how fires could be affecting those. We know that soils are a bad conductor of heat, um, but depending on the intensity of a fire or how long that fire is burning on that soil surface, it might very well also be having an effect on the soil microbial community. And that's also, you know, um, I don't know much about microbiology and soil microbes, but just from a park perspective, you know, I feel like conservation starts all the way from what's below our feet all the way up to an elephant. So that's another field that I'm quite interested in. I couldn't agree more. Tarisha Martin, thank you so much for coming and sharing all your expertise. Um, you certainly educated me and I can imagine a lot of people listening in um, hearing a lot more about, about the role of fire on our planet and particularly as, as we move forward um, with climate change. So thanks so much for coming and joining us on the show. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you very much. 
Huge thanks to my guests, Professor Martin Wooster and Tertia Stradom, for joining me on this episode. We'll be completing the elements next time when we focus on air. Can physics guarantee clean air for everyone to breathe? Make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out. Looking Glass is a chalk and blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producers are Fatuma Keira and Rosie Stouffer, with editorial guidance from Sarah Stolarz. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. The original music is by Alex Portfelix, with mixing by Nassan Da Silva. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan, and the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. The Institute of Physics is campaigning for more young people from more diverse backgrounds to study physics. For more information, please visit iop.org forward slash limitless.